You are now in the mix with the Atomic Podcast, where we blow up the news. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from the Upper West Side, New York City, where we blow up the news on a verbal scale. My guest today, he was an attorney, he's a writer, he's a film director, he was a former New York State Assemblyman, um, he's done a lot of things, and he's also an author. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Nelson Antonio Dennis. Am I pronouncing Dennis right? Yeah. Oh, okay, it's good. Oh, how you doing, Nelson? Good, good. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we met. Um, at, I think it was at the Oslo's College. Is that correct? Yes. That we meet at Oslo's. And uh, thank you for your interest in the book. I appreciate it. No, not a problem. Not a problem, Nelson. Um, I know you're from New York City. You grew up in New York City. Um, how was it growing up in the Big Apple? And where exactly in New York City did you reside in? I grew up in Washington Heights. Um, and went to... Catholic schools there, and uh, then afterwards, um, things started changing a bit when I went off to high school, and then, and then you know, I studied hard to, to, um, to get scholarships, and, and then went on and graduated, went to law school, and, uh, but I still, uh, I still pretty much stayed close to home. I, I lived in Washington Heights most of my life, mm-hmm. uh, except for about 14 years in East Harlem when I was the, during the time that I was involved in the politics and I was the assemblyman there. That was a few years ago. Oh, what part of East Harlem? Because I used to reside on 110 and 5th Avenue in East Harlem. Um, where did you... Ah, but you live at this part there, man. That's, that was, that's really nice, right near Schomburg. Yeah, Schomburg, you know, exactly. That's, that's, my, that's my old building, Schomburg Plaza. You live in Schomburg, yeah? Yeah, 1295. You know Bill Perkins. Yeah, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I used to... yeah. Bill Perkins. Yeah, and the, the uh, what is it, the... Uh, the Sojourner Truth Club that he has, the Democratic Club there. I lived on 100, uh, most of the time on 114th Street between 1st Avenue and, and Pleasant. It's an interesting, it's a really nice block because it's right in front of Jefferson Park. So um, it's not that it's not that crowded because half the street there's no there's no there's no buildings on the other on the other half of the street. It's the park. Yeah. So it's it's a low density place, and uh, we could go play. I love I really like playing soccer. So they, you know, they have soccer there all the time, and um, and just as a little icing on the cake, the the Rayos restaurant, Rayos is there on 114th and Pleasant, wow. and so it was always, you know, it was a really nice block. Everybody really knew each other, and uh, just a, one of that really nice parts of the other city that people don't know about. I really think that that area right there is a beautiful place to live. Yeah, it's rare that you say soccer because, especially in that area, everybody is into baseball, handball, stickball, and you know, I was I was living in Queens before. Queens is big in soccer, but in that area, there was a lot of soccer. You know, you... a lot. Yeah. yeah, but then what happened is, um, we the the, the uh, grass the soccer is really hard on the ground because there's a lot of cutting and breaking, stopping and moving, and, and so it's really hard on the grass, and it can chew up grass, and you end up just having like becomes a sandlot. It, uh, it just becomes dusty. So what they finally did there in Jefferson, we kept asking for AstroTurf, mm-hmm. and they did. So they AstroTurfed the thing. But then, along with that, what was not expected is that they they made it a city facility. So now all these teams come and play, and they, come, they not only play, they even come and practice. Yeah. They have private schools to come and practice there during the week and hold 
their practices, you know, like the little prep schools at York College and yeah. Dwight and Trinity and others. Um, so you have all these kids that aren't from the neighborhood that they come to use it because they, the, the, the city gives them the permits. And then on the weekends, you have leagues that they come in and play. And then hundreds of people come in as spectators. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of people come in as spectators for these leagues that are coming from other parts of the city. And then on top of that, and I'll say this on the radio, there's this guy who I will not name, who <laughs> okay. is in with the city, you know, got a sort of an in, and so he sells, which is illegal, which is, he sells the permits for the weekends, you know, so he has a vested interest in bringing more people in. Oh. Because if he can, if he can squeeze in an extra game, mm-hmm. like if it's only supposed to be between three and five, but he, you know, he somehow cons the city administration and he and he squeezes an extra game in there, um, and then he can charge them for for that. So you have a, a, a fellow who then is selling extra time. So long story short, I'm here to talk about hopefully about the book, but <laughs> soccer is not only alive and well; it's too alive and well. Yeah. And I hope that they that things got straightened out of Jefferson Park so that the people who live there can use it. Because when, when we were there, when we were playing, it was really a neighborhood thing. Yeah. But suddenly it, you know, became a, a huge, you know, a, a, like a city spectacle. And then the residents weren't really happy because all of a sudden, on, especially on the weekend, you have hundreds of people coming in. And you know what happens when you got hundreds of strangers coming into your, to, to your park. You can... You know, they start yelling, they can leave bottles around, and, you know, it's it's no longer a neighborhood park. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, soccer was a lot of fun at Jefferson, and, and yeah, they, they played a lot there. They played a lot. Wow, I'm surprised to hear that. I always thought everything was baseball. It's, like, rare, because even, you know, living over there, I'd never really seen anybody play soccer until I moved to Queens, and Queens is really, really big on soccer, so that's that's kind of cool, though. Yeah, but remember that there's also Mexican and Senegalese that yeah. live in, in East Harlem. Like 30 years ago, Maybe even 20 years ago, it was, you know, more uh, black Iboricua, right? Black yeah. and Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. But it, it's gotten a little more diversified now. And there's a, you know, pretty strong pop- Mexican population, and that's their sport. So, yeah, you know, you know. come on. I know, the thing is, like, yeah. now, like, uh, like we call it East Harlem, but, like, certain people, they call it Upper Manhattan. So, you know, they like, they're taking, uh, taking away the identity little by little. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so what, so, um... Yeah, 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 no problem. Um, I know. Cause, um, let me just get get into college. You grew, um, you graduated from Harvard College in um law school. Did the law was a passion you always had? It felt like the the, the thing that the right thing to do. Um, I was an only child, and yeah, I wrote this in my in my book in the preface. Um, my father was Cuban, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis in of October nineteen sixty two. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of anxiety and, and a lot of uh, bureaucratic restlessness in um, in this country, and they started rounding up people. And my father, who had a lot of meetings, he was in favor of Fidel Castro, but for that matter, so had the New York Times been at, at, for a while, and they helped actually even help Fidel Castro with a very extensive series of articles while he was doing, engaged in his revolution. Yeah. Um, well, my father had me at meetings um, just to discuss to discuss politics. He would have it uh, on Saturdays, and then would stay till till dawn. And my mother would make black coffee for everybody. <laughs> yeah, like a lot, ten or fifteen people. And so I guess he became. 
known as a as a supporter of Fidel Castro, and um, during right after the Cuban Missile Crisis in November, some FBI guys came around three in the morning, and they took him away. They took away my father, and they deported him to Cuba, and I never saw him again, just like that. Oh, um, so that that left a real impression on me, especially as I'm an uncle. I was eight years old when it happened, but I didn't know that it would be permanent. So as years went on, and it became increasingly evident that I wasn't going to see my father and our family had been torn apart, um, being able to defend myself, my family, um, understanding what had happened, uh, and, uh, and being able to do something about it in the future became more a uh, thought. It became more important to me. So when after college, while in college, I um, decided that that was a way to what I wanted to do with my with my life. There were other options, things I really enjoyed doing, but this felt like the thing that I really sh- that I really should do. And so I, be- I went to law school and um, practiced law for a while. And then I was um, the editorial director for the editorial page of a diario, yeah. um, and and wrote a, a lot about three hundred editorials for them. And then not too long after that is when I got involved in politics. Oh. But I always kept writing. I've been writing for over 30 years, constantly, constantly. I have three unpublished novels. Um, maybe that'll change now. And I've written a number of screenplays for the last oof, 30 years, in 1984, is when I wrote my first screenplay. So I've been, you know, this is who I am. I've been a writer from, from almost my entire life, and now I've published this book. Yeah. And that's, that's where we are. So, um, or before I get into like the writing part, um, so you transitioned from lawyer to state assemblyman, right, from '97 to 2001. How did that happen? Well, at the time I was writing, I was the editorial. Uh, I was writing the masthead editorial, which mm-hmm. is the one that's that's the editorial that that comes from the newspaper itself. It's the editorial of the newspaper, yeah. and it's bilingual English Spanish. So I was write, I was writing the masthead editorial for Diario. And in, in doing that, I would be interviewing a lot of elected officials uh, over the period of writing those 300 ed- editorials. And just at that time, in 1991, there was a city, New York City Charter revision um, because it was found the government of New York State, New York City, was found to be in violation of the U.S. Constitution um, under the one-man, one-vote principle. Now I'll explain that.
million people in it. By itself, Brooklyn would be the second or third largest city in the country. Mm-hmm. Just Brooklyn. Wow. So that's three million. Staten Island has about 300,000 people in it. This is a, you know, a rough estimate. Maybe, you know, give or take 100,000 or something. But the point being that Brooklyn had 10 times as many people as Staten Island. And yet Staten Island and Brooklyn have only each had one borough president on the Board of Estimates. So in other words, the people of Staten Island were being overrepresented by a factor of 10, because since Brooklyn had 10 times as many people, in all fairness, they should have 10 times as many representatives on the Board of Estimates to properly reflect their interests, because, and that's what one man, one vote means. So. Brooklyn, by just by you know, just for the fairness of how many people there are in there, should have ten votes on that board of estimate in relation to Staten Island's one vote because there's ten times as many people in Brooklyn. Do you understand that? That makes sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so they filed that, and it was it was deemed to be. You said, you know, you're right. Uh, you know, it is. It violates the you know equal proportion. You know, it's like having a congressional. It's like having. Uh, one congressional district that has 10 times as many people in it. Well, that's not right. That means that you should have 10 congressmen representing all those 10 different districts. You don't just have one. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. So what, because of that, they revised the city charter and they dismantled the Board of Estimate. It no longer exists because they couldn't figure out a way to keep it going. They certainly couldn't do it with just the borough presidents and they weren't going to have 10 borough presidents in, in, in Brooklyn. So what they did is they eliminated the Board of Estimates, and they newly empowered the city council, and then the city government became a, from a bicameral to a unicameral legislature, just one body, which is the city council, and it went from 36 to 51 members. They added 15 more, more seats, and they gave it powers that it hadn't had before, because before, the Board of Estimates really had the power, but now they gave the, the city council powers of, of uh, oversight over the city budget, mm-hmm. over land use, over land use disposition, and over the city, o- o- over, uh, oversight over city agencies. So budget, land use disposition, and city agency oversight. Those are three powers that it ha- didn't have before. Before, the city council, 40% of its legislation had been to rename parks and street signs. That was 40% of what their legislation had been. So much so that a, a, a municipal wagnate, uh, uh, Daniel Stern, who became the uh, city parks commissioner, he said that the, the uh, city council wasn't even a rubber stamp because at least a rubber stamp leaves an impression. That's a, you know where people uh, people were, were talking. So anyway, so what what happened in '91 is that with a newly empowered city council and 15 new seats that had no incumbents in them. There wasn't someone already in power. And I had graduated with a degree from government. I majored in government at Harvard Mm -hmm. and went to Yale Law School and I was writing for Diario and I was always interested in public life. But it seemed that politics was dominated by all these little, you know, pre-existing, these vested interests and the you know, there's a, a, sort of a machine in each district, yeah. and there was an incumbent. Uh, so I figured this was the one time that I might get a chance to run um, without having any 
you know, political machine backing, just as an independent person. So I, for a city council that made that could make a difference. So for that reason, that in '91 I said, you know what, I'm going to run. This is the first time I'm going to. I ran for anything, yeah. um, and so I did. I didn't win. Unfortunately, I didn't win. Um, but some people thought thought well. They 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 liked what me. They thought there was some value, and then they kept encouraging me to to do it again. And so I, you know, I. I didn't think I was going to be running more than once. I just thought I would do it that one time. But it's kind of like the bug. You know, you get bitten by the bug. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I, I ran uh, again, and eventually I, I did win, not for the city council, but for the assembly yeah. in, in East Harlem. So that's how it happened. Yeah, You was a Democrat too, of course, right? Yeah, the Democratic Party, yeah. Oh, wow. So um, um, when, once you was there, did you feel... Like, did you feel that you accomplished? Like, was that a like a goal that you had set in your life that you wanted to accomplish? Well, just becoming, you know, so winning is a, it's kind of an empty thing because then that's just sort of a, um, you know, a little selfish. Oh, now I'm the assembly. I ran for a reason. There were things I yeah. wanted to, that, I, that were needed to be done in East Harlem specifically at that time in 1996. Even at, uh, as recently as that, that was 19 years ago. There were 40 acres of vacant and abandoned buildings if you put them all end to end. But there was not, there was insufficient investment and access to to private, i.e. bank financing, to develop those lots and to rehabilitate those buildings. So I made a, a point of getting um, uh, appointed to the state banking committee in the assembly. I made sh- I, I was very insistent I want to be on the banking committee. And with that, I commissioned a, a CRA, a Community Reinvestment Act study, that did, uh, that did a census-by-census tract breakdown of bank lending and the loan-to-deposit ratio in each census tract in East Harlem compared to south of 96th Street. And sure enough, the, the figures showed very clearly what, what, what everyone knew, but now I had the facts and figures that 96th Street was the Berlin Wall of bank lending that it was like an immediate steep drop north of 96th Street. Even although there were lower amounts of money on deposit, the loan-to-deposit ratio was still very low. For every dollar that East Harlemites had in the seven mainstream banks that were that were operating in East Harlem, the banks were lending 300% less on that dollar than they were for the dollar north uh, south of 96th Street. So... With that information, I then started holding public hearings, and I kept uh, uh, promulgating a, a bill in the assembly that that, that you know, came out every year, uh, pushing the banks to do CRA lending, Community Reinvestment Act lending in East Harlem. So between the hearings and the the, the, the census tract study that I did, and the law that that uh, the the bill that I kept passing in in the assembly and the newsletters, because I kept putting it in my newsletters all the time, and then I kept hounding the banks, calling their lending vice presidents, their community affairs vice presidents, and telling them, telling them, this has to change in East Harlem. So that was my biggest priority, and I was really proud that within the, the four years that I was in the assembly, the banks more than doubled their lending. They close to tripled their lending in East Harlem for uh, home rehabilitation and and for... For, for housing in general, and um, now there's a lot more housing in East Harlem. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't there when the money started to come in 
that Modi started to come in, it could have took four years to get that lending to happen. Um, uh, I, I was, someone else came after me, another person, Adam Clayton Powell, um, I'm not coming on your show to criticize him, but um, I think that um, there needed to be more monitoring of how that money, once it did come in, that it was made available to people in East Harlem rather than just gentrification and having a lot of, you know, the, the property values go up and people from the outside getting the loans. Mm-hmm. That's the part that I, need, I think needed to be um, more carefully that there needed to be a real aggressive advocacy for who the bank lent the money to. Um, but that was uh, that was beyond my control because at that point I wasn't in the assembly anymore. But that, I was proud of that, that we did that and also that we um, prevented a heck of a lot of evictions. In the four years we prevented a couple of thousand of people from getting evicted from their apartments because that's the biggest rent, that's the biggest bill that people face every month is their rent. Mm-hmm. And it's just there's a lot of there's you know a lot of economic problems in, in East Harlem yeah. that that came to our office a lot. That was a big problem. We were dealing with it constantly, and we were very aggressive in dealing with the landlords to make sure that they didn't harass people illegally. So uh, you know those are the things that ma- that mattered. And those are the things that uh, 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 that were a matter of pride. Not you know, oh boy, I got elected, and you know I'm an assemblyman. You got to yeah. you, you got to get elected to do something or else there's no point in getting elected. Yeah. What about people that have, like, Section 8? Um, did you have to deal with a lot of people like that? Because I know, are they trying to take out Section 8? Or, like, what's the, what's the story with that? Well, well yeah, I mean, even Section 8, they still have problems sometimes. You know, they still had some people that still couldn't afford the Section 8, you know, whatever you know, whatever component they had to pay. Um, so, yeah, there was a, you know, I don't know about the, how the proportion is now. My guess would be that now... When almost 19 years later, that the proportion is less. Um, so that with Section 8, senior citizens housing, Mitchell Lama, we had all sorts of issues um, constantly. People that, that with problems with NYCHA. Uh, East Harlem has the highest concentration of public housing of any census tract in the country, wow. of, of any district. Yeah, more more than it used to be Chicago the Loop, but they they tore that down. So East, East Harlem has 19 NYCHA developments. Nineteen, Not just 19 buildings. Each development has, you know, an average of maybe 10 buildings. So, it's, you know, in the average, we have about 200 NYCHA buildings. So East Harlem is uh, one of the main repositories of problems with, with NYCHA. Oh, man, that, 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 that's yeah. astonishing. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I mean, just walk through. I mean, you remember, you lived there. So, you know, you have, you have Washington, Lexington, yeah. Taft, Wagner, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, East River Houses. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, I'll go on and on and name them. It's yeah. just, it's an enormous, and that's actually in a funny way, it's one of the, one of the biggest barriers to the gentrification. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for that public housing, boy, that neighborhood would have changed in a heartbeat <laughs> within, within the last 15 years. Yep. You, and you know that, right? Yeah. That's one of the things that's keeping the whole place from being, you know, completely overrun. Yeah, you, <laughs> it's funny. You would see all the Cuchifritos closed down if that was the case. I'm telling you. Oh, my God. They're trying to do it at East River Houses. If you yeah. notice it, Nigel was quietly stockpiling some houses there and not re-renting them. Yeah. And I think it's still going on. There's a thing uh, there with the East River Tennis Association where they're finding that uh, 
that NYCHA is trying to quietly sell off some of its buildings um, to private developers. So, que aquí te mantengo en el barrio porque eso siempre esa lucha va a ser continua. That is so cool. Uh, that pisses me off, but you know, but that's how it is, though. That's 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 yeah. It's the evolution. It's the evolution and the change. It always happens like way. Um, so just let's go. Let's go on a lighter note. Let's go on a lighter note. Um. So, um, your film, Vote For Me, um, you say you've been writing a lot of stuff. How did, um, Vote For Me come about? Well, that was, there's a real nice piece to that. Okay. Um, I had a really great guy that was one of the people that working in my office, my assembly district office mm -hmm. in East Harlem. His name was Leo Rodriguez. Okay. And he was, like, in his early 70s at the time. And when I, one time when I was up in Albany, because we were in session, there was these drugs. Like in a lot of places, it was a drug little group that was selling on the corner, um, and he just got so annoyed. Um, and the idea that they were selling it near the assembly office, so he got into a thing, and apparently like a pushing match, or if I wasn't there, I didn't see it, but like it was like a physical thing. Yeah. That, and I, I, you know, I, I was really impressed with Leo, but I, uh, when I came back from Albany, I, I said, Leo, that was, and... It got the guy off the corner. The guy left. And I said, Cuno, I said, uh, Leo, man, I'm really impressed with, you know, you did what the assembly didn't do. You got that guy off the corner. <laughs> but, but I said, but Leo, I have to ask you, since you remember my office, we really got to be careful because who knows if this guy turns around and tries to start a lawsuit against the state saying that you, you hurt him, that you assaulted him. And just got to be a little careful. Winning the fight is one thing. But getting sued is another. Yeah. But I said, I said, Leo, but here's what I'll do. I said, Leo, do me a favor. Don't beat up any more drug dealers. <laughs> At least, you know, not, not within too close to the, uh, the, uh, but I said, Leo, you've inspired me. I said, the next screenplay that I, because at that point I'd written several of them. Yeah. I said, it's going to be a screenplay about you. It's going to be, and he said, ah, and I, and I said, no, no. I, and that's what I did. The screenplay vote for me is about a, 70-year-old Puerto Rican super yeah. who who gets fed up and runs for Congress with only one campaign issue, with one platform. And whole platform is one thing that he promises that if he gets elected, that he's going to walk up to every drug dealer in East Harlem and kick him in the ass <laughs> and get him a and, and that's it. He says that's all. And then in the, in the debate, when he goes on TV, he says, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to kick him in the ass. Get him, you know, that's the vote for me. And, uh, and, it's, and he becomes a sensation. He actually, he catches on and people think he's great. And he gets, and the story is, you know, in the movie, he gets elected. And so I wrote it and I, I, since I knew all the little political players and the characters and the interesting people in East Harlem, um, I was able to make it very specific and write little, tiny little cameo parts for real people that existed. Mm -hmm. And I even wrote some cameo parts for politicians that existed. And so it was able to, it was sort of like a, a it, was, it was a fiction, but it had a strong reality component, component because the people populated the story who were real people in real life. So it blurred the line between fact and fiction a, a, a little bit. And, it became a sort of a semi-documentary of East Harlem politics, and yet it was a fiction. Um, and so I was really, it was, a, it was a great idea, and it worked within the, the framework that I had, 
which is that I had access to these people. They were willing to do it. I knew their personality quirks, so I could write them very effectively and in an amusing yet compassionate way um, tell a good, and tell a good story. I could also afford it because since I knew a lot of people in these columns, they would help me with, like, locations. They wouldn't charge me. Oh, wow. they, they'd be very tolerant. And so I spent my life savings, my whole life savings on, on that. It was everything I had, but I was able to finish it because, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought it through that way. And the, 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 it was called Vote for Me, and, and it did well. The premiere was in the Tribeca Film Festival, which is a big, good festival. Yeah. And we got a lot of press in the New York Times, the Daily News, the Diario, the Boston Globe, a lot of radio, a, a, a little bit of television. And so it was a, uh, you know, it was a, it was a great experience. And, and I, you know, I, I wrote and directed a feature film. And um, I was really, really proud of how everybody came together for that movie. It's amazing how you got that together. So he basically was the inspiration for you doing Vote For Me, basically? Yeah, because um, it, it was a driving character with a really uh, uh, interesting surrounding life so I could I could see how I could develop that, that person's life story within the movie and since I knew this person so well his name was Leo Rodriguez yeah. in real life yeah. I, I also I had it, I already had in, uh, a strong internal sense of how this character would would react and develop and carry the story um, because I had him in, he was in me I, you know, it was like a, a living entity, so it, was, it, it, was an, it made my job easier as a writer to be able to um, to limb that character, to define it, to define it, to flush it out without making it boring. Because I, I knew just just how the, not, the little things that Leo would say and do that were very quirky and that would move the story forward, but I wouldn't have to surround it with a whole uh, exposition scene that. Because I just knew this character, so I knew exactly how, how to position him within the unfolding story and keep it interesting. And so, it, and it worked. Um, so yeah, he was the inspiration because he just he, he came in fully fleshed. I mean, this character when he went and got into this into this shoving or boxing match with this drug dealer, I I had the central metaphor for my for the for the story. And for, once you have that. And once you have your characters really living inside you, the rest becomes very becomes a lot easier. So, uh, yeah, he inspired it just by being who he was. Wow. Um, how did you get the cast together? Because you had, you know, Malik Yoba, Angel Salazar. How 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 did you pay the actors? And you know, like how I knew Angel. I knew Angel from before. Someone else knew Malik. Um, I took that dad out backstage. This was still a little, there was the internet, but the internet wasn't as strong, this was uh, in 2000, um, 2001, yeah. so I mean, we didn't, it wasn't an internet casting, um, I did it in the, took it out in backstage, yeah. and it was really amazing, I got um, between five and 10,000 8x10 glossies in the mail, a lot more than I expected, so wow. there was no problem as far as the numbers of people, the, the character for Leo Rodriguez, the main character, um, I had seen Ricardo, the actor Ricardo Barber at El Repertorio Español several times, and I knew he was he was so right. So I went and visited him personally, and we, and we he and I rehearsed together um, in advance of the movie, just him and me. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew he was. I went after him. I 
him, I knew that everything with the casting would really fall into place. So him, I didn't even have to audition. I knew that he was great, and he was he was beautiful. He memorized the whole part before the, the first day of shooting. He had the whole part memorized. Because he's a theater actor, and that's how he, he was used to. He was he was great. Um, some of the other actors I were actually people from my campaign. Um, oh, wow. The guy that played Chicharra, it, 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 um, his name was Cartucho, and he was a... Um, I guess, I don't know, I don't, I know it's a politically correct word, it's midget, but a small person. <laughs> a dwarf, he's a, right? He a dwarf. was a small three-foot guy, yeah. um, and he was great, and he played himself. Yeah. And Cedric McCluster, who had been my campaign manager, mm-hmm. he, play, he played himself. Oh, wow. And I had other people uh, from the neighborhood play, essentially playing themselves, because that's how I wrote it. I wrote it, it, it was sort of an Italian neo-realist fashion, sort of uh, the... Um, the way that Humberto Di Sica, Vittorio Di Sica, did, did his, his work. Um, he he, he drapes it along uh, on existing structures and existing people, and and that's what I did in this, and it worked. It was, it was it, because I, I was right in it. I was living that life. I, I just knew everybody, so I had that luxury of knowing where everything would go. And so I was able to create this screenplay, and even though it looks like it was... Well, maybe it's difficult if you don't know how to do it, but I, I did. Um, and so it, it came together because all the elements were there. I just, I, I knew how to fit them in. Wow. How about, like, the um, the dialogue and the writing? Like, how long did it take for you to come up with a script and edit it and everything? I'll be true. I'll be honest with you. Once I, I have the story, I can write it pretty quickly. It doesn't mean that I don't work hard on it. I actually work on it, like, nonstop. Yeah. Um, I was an assemblyman while I wrote this. Oh wow! So okay. I had to be in the, you know, I had to do my, handle my responsibilities. But I was able to write the screenplay in about three months, um, and that's pretty fast because I was I was a full time assemblyman. Yeah. Um, so I would, but I was able to make time. I was able to make two or three hours every day, um, and that's it. I mean, I didn't have any free time beyond that because I had to do my job as an assemblyman. But then, before going to bed, um, sometimes it, it, some people like writing. Right when they wake up, and I, I understand that because your mind is—you um, just yes. had—you've just been dreaming. You've come from another place, and a lot of things sometimes resolve themselves in your subconscious. But I didn't have that luxury because when I woke up, I had to be—I had to be doing my job. So I, I would usually write it late at night, and it worked. Oh wow! Um, did you um, want to do any more scripts, or this—that this was just basically your passion project? That's what you did. No, I said, but um, did you um, like once you did it, and then you know your film was in the Tribeca Film Festival. Did you feel like you would have a niche of doing more writing and either directing? I've, I've written since then. I've written fourteen feature and screenplays. This was the only one that got just because I put my own money in it. It's really hard to break into the to the business, especially if you're doing something else. I mean, you know, one helpful thing is to actually live in Los Angeles if you try to be a screenwriter, um, or to just have some connection, some per- or to have a lot of money. Usually money, uh, a lot of success follows from having a lot of money. That's I- unfortunate, but that's just the, the naked truth. I mean, if I had if I had, had more money, for instance, in this, in this uh, movie I did, I could have gotten a few more quote-unquote name actors, and, uh, and then the, the uh, film would have had a better chance of getting into Sundance and getting distribution, and then your whole... Everything follows from that. Um, so, so, unfortunately, sometimes money is, is somewhat determinative of 
person's options in life. Um, so I, 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 I continue to write, and um, I continue to have stories that I that, that I know are important. And the latest one, this isn't a story; it's the, the it's a true history of, of Puerto Rico, and I devoted four years to that to writing. Yeah, yeah, that's how you and I met. Yeah, and that's, let's definitely talk about that war against all Puerto Ricans. Um, for the people who don't know, just give a brief synopsis of what the book is about. Well, the title, it, it, it really gets right to the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. The words were uttered by the police chief of Puerto Rico. This isn't a fiction. This is, this is a nonfiction book about the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico and, and centering on the revolution of 1950 that was, that was engineered... And, and executed by Pedro Alicio Campos and the Nationalists. But before that, before getting to that revolution, mm-hmm. Police Chief E. Francis Riggs, in 1935, uh, through his police force, they assassinated three Nationalists in broad daylight uh, in October 35, and then had a press conference shortly thereafter where Riggs was asked, what's going on? Why, why are people getting shot? What's this mean? And he, he very simply, with, with no sense of irony or, or explanation or apology, said, if Alviso Campos continues to stir up the sugarcane workers, there's going to be war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. And that's the police chief, just two days after having killed three Puerto Ricans with his, you know, shooting, with his policemen shooting them in, the broad, in broad daylight. So it was really serious. He wasn't kidding. He had just done it. And how did it get to that? Well, when the United States... That, so that's the title of the book, War Against All Puerto Ricans, and it was said by the police chief. So, so that, that gives you an, an, an idea of the relationship that existed at that time between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, that people could do that, kill people, say that we're going to kill some more, and get away with it. They got away with it. it people up here didn't even know about it. That's part of the reason they got away with it, because for many decades, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, mm-hmm. but what happened in Puerto Rico didn't happen at all. That was the idea. It was an island separated by uh, by three, between Puerto Rico and New York, or, or Washington is three or 4,000 miles of ocean, mm-hmm. separated by a language, a culture, 400 years of even American history, technology, there was no television back, back then, certainly no, no internet. All the news that got off Island was controlled, came to the hands of about half a dozen AP and UPI wire service reporters. So really, the, the island was, was living and developing in a vacuum. Things could happen down there that people would never hear about. And if they did, they could be severely misinterpreted and misreported. For instance, that same police force that killed those people, those three Puerto Ricans, in what was known as the Trio Piedras Massacre. And then this police chief says there's going to be more than that against all Puerto Ricans. Well, uh, a year and a half later, not too long, that same police force killed 17 more Puerto Ricans on Palm Sunday in what was known as the Ponce Massacre. Men, women, and children. 17 were shot and killed. Dozens more were maimed for life, and over 200 were seriously wounded and had to be rushed to the hospital. 
on Palm Sunday, and none of them were armed, all unarmed. But, and this illustrates how information would, would not get off the island, what was reported up here was that the nationalists had shot first and that the police simply acted in self-defense, that there was a quote-unquote nationalist riot. There wasn't a riot, and they also reported it as a gunfight. There was no gunfight. A gunfight implies that there's two people fighting one against the other. That's the definition of a fight. But there was no, no fight because the, uh, uh, the Puerto Ricans that were there, they were, they were just marching peacefully on Palm Sunday, supporting Abiso Campos in a peaceful Palm Sunday march. But it was completely misreported, up at, even by the New York Times. So that that's the kind of situation that was um, that that was facing the Puerto Ricans. Take it back a few a few decades before that. Why was it happening? Well, it was happening because it was an economic an economic framework. Mm-hmm. In 1898, the United States occupies Puerto Rico. 1899, Hurricane San Diego devastates the entire year crop. And the, the coffee crop is entirely gone, and nearly a hundred thousand people go homeless. From San Diego, at 1899, the United States sends no hurricane, no emergency relief. Instead, the following year, 1900, they devalue the Puerto Rican currency, the peso, which was actually equal in buying power and value to the American dollar. They were equal, and yet the American government said the peso no longer exists as a currency. You have to use dollars, and every peso is worth 60 American cents. So they devalued wow. everybody by 40%. Imagine doing that in this country. They suddenly, by, by some law, they say, oh, oh, by the way, we forgot to tell you. Everyone, you're, you're now 40% poorer. Everybody. There'd be, this, this place would shut down. This country would not run. It maybe would, but there'd be riots. There'd be tremendous, there'd be bloodshed. There'd be people starving. Look at the ripple effect when just the, the, the two World Trade Center towers went down. Yeah. Look at the, uh, uh, what effect that the ripple effect of just those two buildings going down that it had all over America and on the American economy. Yeah. Well, what would the ripple effect be of a 40% devaluate loss, stealing away of, of everybody's money? The, mag, mag, you know, that's like magnify what the World Trade Center, magnify it. 10,000 times, and that's what, what, what would happen. So that was done to Puerto Rico. 1898, taken over. 1899, the hurricane, no relief. 1900, the, the currency devaluation. And the very next year, 1901, the Hollander Bill created a series of steeply graduated property taxes on, on farmers, every farmer in Puerto Rico, that had never existed before. So between a hurricane, a currency devaluation, and a property tax, it was like a the fix was in for everybody to lose their land. The the only thing they could try to do is to take out is to take out loans, like people did during the mortgage crisis here in two thousand seven. But guess what? There was no usury law restriction in Puerto Rico, and the only place they could go essentially was to and it was a great name for it, the American Colonial Bank. <laughs> so the farmers had to go to the American Colonial Bank and get usurious loans that there was no way they could meet, predatory loans, they couldn't meet the interest rates. The net result, you know what it is, within 10 years, everybody's lo- losing their farms. Within 20 years, 
the United States U.S. banking syndicates owned 80% of Puerto Rico's farms within 20 years. And they turned it all, what uh, was previously a diversified agriculture, like coffee, tobacco, pineapple, sugar, and other uh, other agricultural products, they, they stripped all that and turned it into a one-crop cash cow economy, sugar cane. That was it. Because if they, they could effectuate greater economies of scale. Because, they, they, you know, every, it's all doing sugar like one big factory assembly line. So they own the coastal railroads, the, the, the U.S. banks. They own the insular postal system. They own, eventually, the San Juan International Airport. Airport. They own 80% of, the, of Puerto Rico's farmland. You know, that's a lot. I mean, and then now the, port, the farmers, the people that own their land, are now either sharecropping or they're looking for work. They're looking for work. Okay, so now we're into into 1920s. Like I said, within 20 years it happened. Well, in 1922, the Puerto Rican legislature passed minimum wage legislation, just similar to what the United States had. And what happened? The U.S. Congress uh, vetoed it because U.S. Congress can veto power over any law. They can strike down any law to this day, right today. Yeah. They could ignore or strike down any law promulgated by the Puerto Rican legislature. That's a pretty clear indicator of a colonial situation. So they can ignore or reverse any law, and they they, they reversed the minimum wage law in 1922, and then when the matter was brought to the Supreme Court under the case of Balzac v. Puerto Rico, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the U.S. Constitution did not apply to Puerto Rico. And so therefore... Puerto Ricans were not entitled to the privileges and immunities inherent in the Constitution, despite the fact that they had been declared citizens in 1917, so that they could fight in World War One. So you have the you have the farmers losing their losing their land, trying to get jobs. They can't get minimum wage because the Supreme Court says, "Well, you're a citizen, but you're not entitled to citizen the, what <laughs> what a citizen is supposed to get a Constitution." Well, at that point. The farmers and try to organize themselves. The, the workers try to organize themselves. They're the former farmers who are now working as sugarcane cutters, and so they, they, they form a union. But guess, but guess what? Now the union is selling them out, and the union is, is in league with the with the government because they're trying to get uh, jobs for their family members and contracts with the government. So their own union leaders are selling out los macheteros. At that point is when they went to Albizu Campos. And this was in 1935. And they said to Albizu, we're turning to you because we don't know where else to go. Can you help us with this strike? Albizu said yes. And he and the nationalists went throughout the island and they spoke and they advocated very aggressively. And they won. They won the strike. This was the first time that Puerto Rico unified itself. The whole island, the economy shut down for about four months. Wall Street, they were shocked. And they went into a panic because the workers now, instead of 75 cents, doubled their wages from that strike. From 75 to dollar fifty a day. Uh, it went to 15 cents an hour. Um, and just because of that, they had, the United States knew about Alviso Campos. They knew that he was the president of the Nationalist Party, that he was uh, advocating, organizing, editorializing. He was doing all these things. But they just let him. They couldn't, they couldn't care. All right, talk all the independence you want. Who gives a damn? But the moment that he hurt them in the pocketbook, the moment these, these workers 
strikes because they united with Albizu and the whole island said this, and it was biological. They were starving. People were dying. Because this was in the middle of the Depression, 1934-35, right in the middle. Um, and they just couldn't go any further, and Albizu made it happen. And when that happened, that is when they sent down E. Francis Riggs, this guy, this police chief who said who declared war against all Puerto Ricans as the police chief. And they sent down a, a U.S. Army General, Blanton Winship, to be the new governor of Puerto Rico. And together, Winship and Riggs militarized the entire police force and basically made it a, a suppressive power that was chasing nationalists all over, all over the island. That's why they went down. And to, uh, uh, to, to harass them, to arrest them, and kill them if necessary. And, and all of that happened immediately, right after the strike. And right after the strike, within not a little more of a year, they managed to have Albizu Campos go to jail for seditious conspiracy against the United States, and they sent them off to Atlanta Penitentiary for 10 years. And when the people in Ponce tried to have a peaceful march on Palm Sunday in support of Albizu Campos, that day, that's when they shot and killed 17 of them in the Ponce Massacre. So you see how the, kind of like how the United States was rolling back then. And you could get away with it. Because what happens in Puerto Rico never happened at all back then. You see, so this is a, and people saying, oh, come on, did this really happen? It's history. The facts are there. They don't, they did, people don't know that there was a public law of 53. When Albizu came back from jail after 10 years in December 1947, within five months, they passed La Ley de la Mordaza, the law of the muzzle, public, public law 53 which made it illegal, a felony, to say a word, sing a song, whistle a tune, oh say anything about independence of Puerto Rico, or even, own, you couldn't sing La Bonin Kenya, you could go to jail. You couldn't, wow. own a Puerto, you couldn't own a Puerto Rican flag, you could go to jail for 10 years. And what they, so what they did is they abrogated the First Amendment rights of an entire island in order to shut up one man, Albizu Campos. You know, that gives you an idea, again, of how oppressive that, that uh, the regime, that, how they were operating. They opened up an FBI program called Carpetas. Carpetas were secret police dossiers that were kept by the FBI on anyone with any suspicion of even having thoughts about, it was a thought police, thoughts about independence. They, by the end of the time it was over, over a six, uh, six, uh, period of six decades, they had on over 100,000 Puerto Ricans. 100,000 police files, which totaled 1.8 million pages, secret FBI documents that were only recently declassified, and that's what enabled me to write, that, write my book, those FBI secret do documents that Congressman Jose Serrano uh, convinced the FBI to release and, and declassify. All these things were happening in Puerto Rico. What else? Well, when the Puerto Ricans organized and they had their, their revolution in 1950, which is the main event of my book, mm -hmm. the, uh, what did the, how did the United States deal with it? They deployed 5,000 National Guard troops, arrested 3,000 Puerto Ricans in the space of a week, and they bombed two towns during the daytime in broad daylight. They bombed Hayuya and Utuado. And it was reported in the paper that, that Hayuya was left looking as if, as if an earthquake had hit it. They bombed two towns of American citizens in 1950 
time in U.S. history that the U.S. government has intentionally bombed its own citizens. So this is a pretty, you know, an amazing history that developed in Puerto Rico that people are shocked to hear. How would this happen in the land of the free? And that's the vital irony. The United States couldn't afford to let the world know that they, the quote-unquote leaders of the free world against Soviet Russia, the evil empire during the Cold War, that the leaders of the free world, the United States, had the only classic colony in modern-day history, and what they were doing, what they were, uh, how they were dealing with Puerto Ricans on that island is incredible, even to this day. And that's the story of my book. Wow. Um. So all these documents are FBI and CIA documents. They're all. They're. They're all like you got these on files. Like. Like. Yeah, I got, there are, there's, there's actually, in, here in New York, there's a good number of them at the Centro de Estudio Puerto Riqueño at 119th and 2nd Avenue. They have a pretty good file, but I also did FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Law, um, to get to get more. And um, there was actually even a website that had a really good collection of them, but for some strange reason, and I won't speculate, that website no longer exists. Um, mm. I read, um, you know, it was 1.8 million pages. I couldn't do that, but I read the, uh, the, the, the ones that were the, I felt the most key documents regarding Alviso Campos, Luis Muñoz Marin, and the Nationalist Party, and also regarding certain events, like the Ponce Massacre, the Zuago Massacre, the Rio Piedras Massacre, and the, um, the jailing and the radiation history of Alviso Campos. So in reading all of that, it was a little, a little shy of 10,000 pages. Oh um, but it was the it was the pages that really mattered to to be able to piece together the information and the 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 architecture of my book. Yeah. So you really could do um another continuation, but right? there's more information out there that that you couldn't even get, right? Or there's more information out yeah. there. Yeah, not just me. And here's here's something that I that I'm really happy to say on your program and that I want the message to get out that this is just opening the door. I just opened the door to. A, a, a whole avalanche of inquiry that, that needs to happen. And I, as one human being, I can't do it all by myself. There's 1.8 million pages in there. There's some really interesting stuff. Um, but it's going to take more than one person. Um, I, you know, I, I, I picked out some of the real critical and some of the high points, um, documents regarding Luis Muñoz Marín and his opium addiction and how the United States used that, uh, you know, um, informants, very highly placed informants within the Nationalist Party that were informing for 20 years to the FBI on what Albizu Campos was doing. So there was some, some really, you know, shocking stuff, and, 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 I, and I pieced those together chapter by chapter. But there was a lot more there, and so um, it's like the, 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 uh, the book, the next... I've written a chapter in American, in Puerto Rican history, but there's a whole book that needs to be written, a long one, and I, I, I really welcome everyone into this, uh, you know, because there's, there's a lot more here, there's, a, there's, there's space enough for a dozen books. Oh, it's it's just so it's just so fascinating though because there's so much things that happen in Puerto Rico and us Puerto Ricans we don't know about because we're I guess you you consider us New Yorkans but you know saying like you know we just you know like they have the 116 festival we just represent with the flag dressed up and whatever but we don't really know our history like that so this is just yeah. fascinating you know well also what what I took trouble in this book is to provide for people since people don't so that, 
and I didn't, you know, this was a whole process of discovery. I started in 1974 when I wrote an article in the Harvard Political Review while I was at Harvard on the Constitution of Puerto Rico, and I took a year off to meet some, because I have a nationalist uh, member in my family that knew Avisu Campos, and he introduced me to other people, and that's how it all started back in 1974. And I, you know, for my research for this book, even though I didn't know I would be writing this book, started 40 years ago because I kept these conversations going. Um, and, and I, as time went on, I started to take notes on, on these conversations and, and to compare the notes between different nationalists and what they told me. But what I did and when I finally uh, produced and constructed this book and what, what I've done for the student, for a person who, who hasn't had this luxury of following this issue for 40 years, is that my book has over 700 footnotes very careful, detailed, um, and thorough. Some footnotes are like a, are a page or two pages in length, and they're not boring. There's some really interesting things in there, like a guy named Cap Captain Astro who was stealing guns from Camp Las Casas and selling them to a barber in Santurce. It's really, <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing, man. Um, but those footnotes are like another parallel universe. They're like it's a, a book within a book. And so uh, I try to... Um, because there's a lot of controversy and a, and a lot of new information in this book, I took very, very careful pains to have an infrastructure right on, uh, of information underneath all of these points that document everything that I'm talking about. So it's a good, useful, hopefully it could be helpful to a, just a, a general reader, but to a student, you know, even a, in, either in school or just personally, a person that just likes to to learn, because with the footnotes, they can go then to the sources that I use, and then create their own learning curve and their own process of, of education. So it's both an exciting book, but there's also an encyclopedia of, the, of information underneath it that I, that I tried, so that hopefully it, it, uh, it stands up as a history book for anyone that wants it. Yeah, it's amazing, and you can, they have it at Barnes and Nobles, anybody could pick it up at any bookstore? Yeah, Barnes and Nobles and, um, you know, all the independent bookstores at Amazon. Um, it's an Amazon bestseller. It was actually doing really well. I'm really I'm proud of that. Two year, two weeks before the publication, they just threw pre-sales. It was already the number one Amazon. It's If you go right now, if you go, you know, War Against All Puerto Ricans on Amazon, and you'll see it says it's tag, number one bestseller in three different, in, in all its three categories that, that it's, that it's in. It's been selling really well both on Amazon and in the bookstores. And yeah, it's, a, it's available in just all the, every bookstore. It's certainly in Barnes & Noble, but also in independent bookstores. Are you considering writing a follow-up or is it too early to tell as of yet? Um, there's, as I said, there's, more, there's, there's, there's more a dozen books in there. Um, one thing I'm actually interested in is to see that this gets made into a movie um, because it's a tremendous... People very often learn, as you've noticed, through film and television, and sometimes that's the way that you get attention back to the book itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that there's some people in Los Angeles that are already talking to me about it, yeah. and um, that that process is now, it's under, it, it's a process of developing. Um, I've written a screenplay, that I did, I, I did over the last year, so that's not even an, an issue. So the book and the screenplay are written, um, and it centers on Albizu Campos, he, he's a He's the patriot. He's the El Maestro. He's the one that, made, that that created the conscience that we, that we all 
that we all share at this point. He, two days ago was the 50th anniversary of his death, and um, he deserves all the, the recognition that he never that he never really got. Mm-hmm. He's like the Nelson Mandela, the Simon Bolivar, and, and Jose Martí of our island, mm-hmm. and yet they called him El Rey de la Toalla, the King of the Towers. They, mm-hmm. they did a lot of things to, to him, but they, they couldn't bury his memory and his truth. And I'm proud that, we're, that people are becoming increasingly aware of the, of the special and, and of the quality of this man and the sacrifice that he gave with his whole life. So that's what I wanted to devote myself to, is to see that the story of Pedro Albizu Campos is, is heard both in this book and hopefully in a movie. Yeah, definitely. Even in a movie or even in Netflix, because, you know, Netflix, you know, there's really no ratings and there's no sponsors. You can even put something like this on Netflix, you know, and just have it like a like a whole season, you know, not necessarily like a two-hour movie, but, you know, you can really get into the nitty-gritty part of it, too. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little confused. You're saying Netflix, but Netflix, Netflix presupposes the existence of a movie or else there's nothing to put on Netflix, so... We're talking about, we're still talking about the same thing, about not making a film, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, also, um, um, have you um, did any speaking engagements around the area, or? Yeah, um, some of them, they just develop organically. One person, I see a group here, and then they invite me to somewhere else. And the last, the most recent one was two days ago at, at, at Ospos. Um, I've done a few schools. Um, I did a four-day tour in Chicago where I was really impressed. I got to meet Jose Lopez Rivera, the brother of Oscar Lopez Rivera, the prisoner. And um, Jose Lopez Rivera is known as the mayor of Division Street in Chicago. He's really a dynamo. He's amazing. Uh, He's the co-founder of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center in in Humboldt Park, the founder of the Pedro Rabisu Campos High School on, on Division Street. There's like a at least half a dozen social service agencies that he sponsored and brought into existence on Division Street. The Division Street is spotless clean. He even has a, an all-volunteer sanitation crew that cleans up the whole neighborhood every week. It's, it's like that. It's, it's, that kind, it's like it's a special neighborhood, the way a neighborhood used to be and the way it should be. That's what it is in, in Division Street. And it's really amazing. I, oh, he's also a professor at University of Chicago, Illinois. This guy is—I is, don't know where he gets all his energy from. Everybody knows him, and they love him. He's the—he's the mayor of the, of the Vision Street, and, and actually, that's completely true because the last four aldermen, which is like the city council, the equivalent of the city council in New York, the last four aldermen in a row from that district were basically designated by him. <laughs> he is the mayor. So I went with him, and he put together several book signings and book events in a row. Um, I'm going to be going to Puerto Rico in two weeks for a media tour that's being put together by uh, some the sales rep down there uh, for, the, for the for my publisher. And then in July, uh, I, uh, members of the of the uh, Puerto Rican Independence Party have been contacting me because they want to do a, a multi-city tour. With, with the book down in, in July um, to, to make it sort of a part of their own platform. So I'll be going in for Puerto Rico um, twice. And, you know, there'll be more. To, I, this Saturday I'll be going to Austin's College again from 10 o'clock to 1 in the morning, uh, from 10 a.m. to 1 in the afternoon. Um, yeah, at Ospos, um Hanson Borrero, the reporter, will be there. I'll send him in Jose Rivera. Jose 
Lopez Rivera, the man I just talked to you, uh, just mentioned to you, he will be the moderator. He will be there on Saturday. It will be my honor to just be sitting there with this man. He's going to be there this Saturday at Boston's College. And so uh, I'll be proud to, to be a part of that. On May 30th is the, is the, the march on 125th Street. Um, on behalf of Oscar Lopez Rivera, and I'd like to take this moment, this chance on, on your podcast to invite everyone to come in support of freeing Oscar Lopez Rivera to be there on 125th Street on May 30th. I believe it's at noon, um, but you'll certainly hear more, much more about it over the next few next few weeks. And please join us to to try to free this brother. He's the longest standing political prisoner now in American history, and that's important. So those are some of the things I'm doing. Oh, that's amazing, um, Nelson. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. War Against All Puerto Ricans is available at every bookstore. You can get it on Amazon.com. Um, it's an amazing. Um, you have a long, illustrious history, and I look forward to seeing what you do in the future, Nelson. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be invited onto your show, and, and I'll, I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of each other in the future, and well, there's many struggles that we'll be a part of. Yes, definitely. And I hope everybody was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one. Okay.